Engaging Leader, episode 105. Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace, featuring Ron Freeman. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. As a leader, how can you create a great place to work that not only attracts great people, but also promotes smarter thinking? greater innovation, and stronger performance. Now, as you probably already know, there's a popular annual survey about great places to work that boils everything down to trust. But I just have to wonder, is there more to it than that? Now, in the brand new book, The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace, psychologist Ron Friedman uses the latest research from the fields of motivation, creativity, behavioral economics, neuroscience, and management to dig into what really makes us successful at work. Dr. Ron Friedman, welcome to Engaging Leader. Thanks for having me. Ron, as a social psychologist, you discovered a massive divide between the latest science and the modern workplace. Tell us about that. You know, the impetus for this book really uh, came out of my experiences in going to the modern workplace and, and experiencing it first, firsthand. I uh, spent years as a psychologist uh, teaching um, motivation in the lab and, and doing research and experiments in colleges and universities. And then I went off into the corporate world. It was after I had gotten a position as a full-time professor and I decided, you know, I really got into this because I want to learn new things and I felt like I wasn't learning enough just teaching psychology. So so I applied for a job as a pollster, someone who measures public opinion and then makes recommendations on how companies and organizations can influence the, those opinions. And when I got to the modern workplace in the corporate world and I worked at a variety of different companies, I realized something really unexpected, which is everything that I took for granted as a psychologist about you know, ways that people can become more productive and more creative and more engaged in the work that they do. All of those insights that psychologists know and teach weren't really being applied at many organizations. And it wasn't just one or two things. It's everything from the way that companies hire to the way that managers motivate to the basic design of the modern office. All of it seemed blind to a wealth of research. And it wasn't for a lack of interest. Every business leader that I know is fascinated by how they can improve their company and make it more productive and get their employees more engaged. The trouble is that all of the research is buried beneath layers of academic jargon. Hmm. Um, and so that's why I wrote The Best Place to Work as a means of taking all of the information that psychologists have uncovered and making that accessible and actionable to the average employee and the average employer. Yeah, it's interesting. The book was full of really interesting, enjoyable stories. And I kept thinking to myself, wow, I can't believe I've never heard of this before. Hmm. Is there one that stands out for you? Well, just, yeah, the one that pops into my head right now is the story about Google when they were recruiting for new talent. And uh, instead of just putting an ad on you know, monster.com or something like that, they put up a sign in, I think it was like the train stations and airports around the area of Harvard maybe, and it had a, a mathematical equation 
com. So it, That's right. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, first 10-digit prime found in the consecutive digits of e.com. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and that's the point because they're not trying to recruit me. They're trying to recruit people who are interested in problem solving and have a mathematics background. And so when you uh, – if you figured out what the what the right answer was, which is in this case is a series of I think 13 digits, you get to this website that says congratulations, nice work, well done, mazel tov. You've made it to Google Labs and we are glad you're here. One thing we learned while building Google is that it's easier to find what you're looking for when it comes looking for you. And what we're looking for is the best engineers in the world. And here you are. And so what that story, I think, really emphasizes is this idea that if you can get people who are like-minded and are interested in the work that you do, aware of your company, you're going to be a lot better off at hiring people who are a good fit for your company. Yeah, your, your whole chapter on hiring proved over and over again that we're pretty lousy at selecting the right talent for a number of different reasons and uh, that big aha from that the google story and some others that you told was that you increase your odds of making a successful hire who's a good fit if your candidate pool is a higher quality and a, a better fit for your organization and, and objectives in the first place that's exactly right and the other uh, key takeaway in that chapter and there are a number of them is that interviews, in-person interviews, are really a very bad tool for identifying good candidates. And for one thing, it's because there's studies showing that 81% of job applicants lie during an in-person interview. <laughs> and that's a conservative figure. Um, and so we're using this this tool that is inaccurate and frankly puts people in a position where they feel like they have to stretch the truth in order to just get far enough into the process where they can actually get the job. The other part of it is that our minds are terrible at evaluating candidates. We automatically make all kinds of erroneous assumptions about a candidate based on their appearance. So for example, a good-looking person tends to be viewed is more competent than they than they are. A tall person tends to be viewed as having greater leadership skill. A person with a deep voice tends to be viewed as being more trustworthy than they are. None of these things are true, but it's just the way that we interpret people's appearance, and then that impacts the questions that we ask in the interview. So, for example, Jesse, if I find you to be someone who I think is extroverted, I might ask you um, to tell me about your experience leading groups. But if I have that initial impression of you as being more introverted, I might say, are you comfortable in front of a group of people? Both of those questions get at the same information, but the framing of that question then leads you to give me, to give you, give me an answer that then confirms my initial belief. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So what I argue in the book is that rather than simply judging people on how well they answer your question in an interview setting, um, base, it, base your hiring decisions on people's performance on a, a task that's relevant at the, at the job that they'll actually be doing at your company. So for example, if you're thinking of hiring a web designer, rather than bringing them into a in-person interview, have them mock up a landing page for you. Or if you're thinking of hiring a salesperson, have them deliver a presentation on why you should purchase whatever product you're selling. That way your first impression in a, is on their performance on a job-relevant task. We recently followed that advice in uh, hiring for a, a new position that was a uh, junior consulting role with a lot of writing and editing and project management. And so we came up with three short tests. 
One, obviously, a writing, uh, give them a, a, something that we wanted them to write, and one where we wanted them to proofread something, and then one where we wanted them to uh, just double check, like he, here's um, here's a markup, a PDF where, where we had marked up a whole bunch of corrections, and here's what the graphic designer came back with, and uh, tell us w- if there were further corrections that need to be made. Mm-hmm. And so that helped us both get a sense for how good of a writer they were in terms of creativity and also for technical uh, expertise. But the editing and proofreading helped us get into just how what a, do they have the eye for accuracy and detail uh, that we need in mm-hmm. that level of position. And it, it really did make a difference in helping us sort out, uh, weed out the, the, the lesser qualified candidates before we bothered uh, having any interviews with them. Yeah, I think that's exactly the way to do it. And, you know, a lot of times you're going to, you might have some candidates who say, I'm, I don't have time for this. And that's useful information too, because what it tells you is they're not all that motivated. Maybe they're window shopping. They just want to know what you're offering so they can leverage your offer at their current firm. Um, and so having that initial step where they have to prove their worth is valuable because it's going to um, get rid of the people who maybe aren't such a good use of your time and also give you information you wouldn't necessarily get. I, I have to tell you in my personal experience, I've done this as well as a manager and I've been very surprised how often, uh, And I, but I, in my case, I do bring them in for the interview. So I have both of those pieces of information to um, to utilize. And I can't tell you how low the correlation is. Someone who interviews really well and then the, the work, work that they do at that sample task. And um, the, some of the best hires I've made were people who didn't necessarily interview all that well, but then their work was stellar. <laughs> and I wouldn't have had that information. I would have just hired people who were good interpersonally um, and, and been in a, in a worse off position if I hadn't had that task. And, you know, frankly, interviews are important and you are, being good interpersonally is really critical if you are in a role that has that as a requirement. So if I'm hiring a salesperson, their performance in that in-person interview is going to tell me some really critical information. But if I'm hiring an analyst or if I'm hiring someone who's working behind the scenes, not quite as important. And so you really need to think about the work they'll be doing and then design an activity. One last thing I'll say about this is that for a lot of companies, the reality is when you're looking to hire someone, you're scrambling. You're you, you, someone's about to leave or you had to let someone go and you're already covering for their workload. And you don't have time to create this, which is why it's really important to take the time when you have the people you need in place to design the activity. And one other thing you can do is actually have the person who's in the role at the moment design the task. So that way, if you're not an expert at doing the work, you can have someone who is expert create the activity with an answer key so that you can compare if that person is is gone in a year. So a couple of tips we've talked about so far. One is when you're when you're uh, selecting somebody you've recruited and, and now you're in the selection process, design some tests uh, to figure out their skill level, especially try to have some with help from somebody in, who's in that current role design the test. Mm-hmm. And then um, the other thing we talked about was try to improve the quality of your candidate pool in the first place by uh, thinking of some ways to recruit uh, exactly more the type that you're looking for, similar to the story that we told from Google. 
Now, speaking of Google, when their name tends to come up over and over again whenever you're talking about happy workplaces. Um, and at Google, employees get free gourmet meals and massages and haircuts and doctor visits and bowling on site and free of charge. It just begs the question, does having a happy workplace come down to spending more money? Well, I think that having more money is going to make it a lot easier to do, but I don't think that one necessarily follows from the other. Um, You know, it's one of the great fallacies that I see is, you know, Google is the best workplace according to Fortune magazine, and I don't have Google's budget, so how do I compete? And I don't think that it's really the budget that makes Google different. I think what differentiates great workplaces from average ones isn't the number of swimming pools or the ping pong tables they have available. It's the extent to which they satisfy employees' underlying psychological needs and create the conditions that allow people to do their best work. I talk in the best place to work about what are those psychological needs and they're the need for growing your competence on the job, not just feeling like you're good at your job, but actually growing and viewing your employee, your, um, your company as a vehicle for that growth. The second one is feeling autonomous in the way that you do your work. And finally, feeling connected to your fellow colleagues in a meaningful way. And when we have those psychological needs met, and you don't need a ton of money in order to create the conditions that allow people to feel that way, when we have our psychological needs met, we're happier, healthier, and more productive. So three psychological needs that are at the heart of employee engagement, autonomy, competence, and connectedness or, or uh, relatedness. Mm-hmm. Let's look at those a little bit deeper and maybe get some examples of each. Um, can you sort of define autonomy and, and give us a, an example or two? Sure. The autonomy would, is defined by researchers as the experience of choice. So feeling like I'm doing, I'm spending my time the way I want to spend it because I, I value the decisions I've made. And it's not because my manager has told me that if I don't do it, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to make my bonus or I'm afraid of losing my job, but rather it's because this is the way that I want to spend my time. And so it's a psychological experience rather than any sort of tangible thing that an organization can provide. So there are specific things that you can do as a manager to create the conditions that make people feel more autonomous. So for example, when you are introducing a new task, provide, take a few minutes to provide a rationale for why it is that the work the employee is about to engage in is going to have value for the organization. A lot of times managers kind of take for granted that their employees have the same level of understanding or information about why a project or task is valuable that, that they just don't. Uh, they don't have this, they're not exposed to the same meetings, they don't have the same connections to clients, and so taking the, taking the time to provide that information is critical. The other thing you can do is provide flexibility on how and when the work is performed. So you've outlined the rationale. You're saying, here are the tasks that we need you to do. Here are the goals we've outlined. And what we're looking for you to do is identify the method for getting that work done. So if you're providing people with the rationale, you're giving them the flexibility on where and when to do the work, and you're asking them to identify what the process is rather than uh, stating for them, here are the five things you need to do to get to our goal, you're inviting them to have input and all of that helps create the experience of autonomy. Hmm. So I like at one point in the, in the book when you're talking about autonomy, you've talked about how to empower your employees to find their best way of working. Sometimes for that takes some trial and error on some people. And I guess as a manager, you can coach people to uh, 
to discover what's what's works best for them in terms of their energy levels throughout the day and um, whether they need to be working more in combination with other people all the time or, if, or, or more solitary. It's also, I thought, interesting how you talk about this sort of motivating by subtraction that you it's it's helpful to as in your role as a leader to identify barriers that get in the way of your team's natural intrinsic motivation identify those barriers and eliminate them yeah you know i i think that if you consider the way that people enter a role their first day on the job they tend to be very very motivated. They want to do a good job. And it's because when we have the ability to grow our competence and do our work autonomously and connect to other people, that's naturally motivating. We want those things to happen. And we don't necessarily need um, fear that comes from a manager or an extra incentive. Obviously, bonuses are motivating, but it's not the only thing that motivates people. Motivation is complicated. So if you look at the way that people are coming in, their job and they're highly motivated on day one and then you look at them a year later a lot of times they're not quite as motivated and so what's happened um, one of the things I'd argue is that many of the factors that play into our day-to-day experience on the job are demotivating things like constant distractions via the emails that we have Um, for example you have a lot of emails that appear on the screen constantly and, and if you have that requirement of people checking their email all day long that creates this feeling of frustration of not really getting the important work done and that leads to burnout and this uh, feeling that people have that they need to either come in before hours or work through lunch or work on the evenings and weekends in order to get any work done. And so if you can create the conditions that allow people to feel more productive on a day-to-day level, they're going to stay more motivated in the long run. So I talk in the book about practices like giving people the flexibility to turn off their email. encouraging people to check their email. If they can, and you know, it depends on the role. If you're working in a PR position where you need to constantly be monitoring the news, turning off your email may not be ideal for you. But the reality is most of us aren't working in those types of positions where we don't need to constantly be uh, connected. So allowing people the flexibility to say, I'm going to check my email at 9 o'clock and at 12 o'clock and at 4 o'clock. And, um, I'm going to have less stress in my life as a result of that. I'm going to feel more productive and I'm going to do a better job and stay motivated for my company. That's a great example. Well, let's talk about competence. Uh, What's an example of how a leader can promote competence? Right. So competence, you know, I think is, has two parts. One is you need to feel like you have the skills you need to do a good job. And the other part is, and this is critical, you need to feel like you're growing on the job. And I give the example in the book about video games. If you think about what video games have, what are the features of video games that make them so engaging and so addictive? Really kind of interesting to look at because if you study how video games operate, a lot of the tasks that we're involved in when we're playing Tetris, for example, are not particularly exciting. You know, it involves sorting blocks that are falling from the sky. If you're playing solitaire, you're just sorting cards. These aren't necessarily naturally enthralling (laughs) activities. But the conditions that video games include make them really, really engaging. So what do video games have? They have instant feedback, so you know whether or not you've done a good job, and you can improve as a result of that. You get recognition when you've succeeded, and then critically, there's progressive difficulty. The, the video games get harder the longer you play them. The, now, all of those 
conditions are things that we desperately seek in our work. We want recognition. We want feedback. We want progressive difficulty. And if you think about the trajectory of most jobs, most jobs get easier the longer you do them. They don't get harder. And so it's much more difficult to stay engaged when you are engaged in the first couple of months because the work is really, really challenging. But then a year or two or three later, you're doing the same thing again and again, and you're going to get bored. And so if you want to create the conditions that allow people to be at their most engaged, you have to think about progressive difficulty, and that goes hand in hand with the experience of competence. So some examples in the book about how leaders can can help their employees feel more competent and grow that um, experience. One is to think about offering a reading budget. This is something that's really, really inexpensive. Um, invite your employees to buy a book a quarter or a book a month, something that's relevant to their industry. And that allows them to feel like they're continuing to grow their understanding and their skill set um, while they're on the job. And you know, you can create a reading, uh, a reading, cl- uh, a book club if you'd like, or you can create an office library. And the idea is that as we're learning new things, we can apply new skills to our job. Think about what our next project's going to be. It just creates a completely different atmosphere. Um, which is the you know the alternative is what happens now, when people feel like their skills are frankly atrophying a lot of times. Um, when they're on the job because they learned whatever they're going to learn before they got there and now they're just putting it to use and that's just not enough to get them feeling engaged. The other thing is offering people some giving them the flexibility to look at industry blogs over the course of the day. You know, take 15 minutes at the end of lunch, for example, before you settle back in to scan what's going on in your industry and you know to talk about what some of the latest trends and some things that people can apply. And then finally, invite employees to identify courses that they can take to grow their competence. That really should be standard in your company if you are looking to get people performing at their best. Hmm. Yeah, those are great ideas. You also mentioned the importance of recognition and feedback. And this has been on my mind lately as I've struggled with giving praise and recognizing that different people... Uh, need different types of praise that that uh, expressing appreciation to one person uh, you know publicly for example that uh, that's going to turn one person on in a big way energize them whereas somebody else it might actually embarrass them and do do you have any suggestions for how to get it right when you are on this whole topic of of praise what's the science behind that well, first, let me tell you about how it's typically done in most organizations. Um, and this, these are, you know, some things that I've seen in a lot of companies personally and some things that I've witnessed as a consultant is for a lot of organizations, most of the feedback comes in the form of performance reviews. So, so you get feedback on a six-month interval or at a 12-month interval, and that's disastrous for people's engagement level because even negative feedback, as long as it's you're getting some information on how you can improve your performance, is more valuable than having no feedback. Or and and then what happens for in a lot of instances is you get the feedback on the on the 12-month interval or the six-month interval, and it feels like it's coming out of left field because you've interpreted the situation completely differently and that makes the job feel uncontrollable because mm-hmm. now my the performance review that I'm receiving is not consistent with my experience on the job and it makes me feel helpless the other the other extreme of this is that people 
people, everybody gets recognized where everybody's doing a great <laughs> job. And that's terrible too, because if you are recognizing everyone for doing a great job, then I can't stand out for my, um, for my contributions because I don't really understand what that person's doing that's good. And, um, and so again, it's not, there's not a level of consistency on the feedback. Then the third way that I've seen um, recognition uh, being applied is the Employee of the Month Award. And, you know, it's really well-intentioned. You want to recognize employees for doing a good job, but uh, paradoxically, it can really be uh, demotivating to people. For one thing, it's because you're creating this false sense of competition between employees. And so now, Jesse, if you and I are working together, I'm less likely to recognize you because that might lead you to get the award and not me. And so there's this level of, you know, how much do I want to compliment others? Then there's the the fact that the vast majority of employees are coming away feeling like losers. You got one winner in a company of 100 people, you have one winner <laughs> and 99 people who go away feeling like they've lost. And then even the person who's won the award they're going to be less motivated because how often are they going to win the award? They just won it. So I guess now they can just kind of phone it in, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. you know, in talking about specific feedback to specific people, what I would recommend is talking to your employees, getting to know them, hearing about some of their, the highlights of their career and what made them really unique and important to them and taking those learnings and applying it and customizing it. Because ultimately as a manager, you can't treat everyone the same way. It's really all about how you um, are motivating each individual employee separately based on your understanding of what gets them going. Very good. Well, the last area that we talked about is employee connections, relatedness. Can you tell us more about that? Right. So Connections, interpersonal connections are uh, a fundamental need that we all have in our daily lives. Um, and so when we feel connected to our colleagues, we are better at doing our job for a number of reasons. One is we can pay less attention to whether or not we're fitting in and we can pay more attention to doing our actual work. The other thing is we feel like we, you know, we can, we're more comfortable letting our colleagues know when they're off on the wrong track. So we, we're, there's greater honesty uh, within a team. And then finally, we're more comfortable asking for help. So that improves our resources on the job. So there are all of these arguments for why we need better relationships in the workplace. And when we think about workplace friendships, we often think about the negatives. We think about people, uh, favoritism, we think about gossiping, we think about fooling around, but in fact, it's the opposite. If you want to have a team that's really engaged, really want to work to build those connections. So what are some of the things you can do in the book, I talk uh, about a number of them, like, for example, when you introduce someone to an organization, don't just talk about their professional experience or, or their, you know, their CV. Talk about some of their interests outside of work. And there are companies doing this now where they'll do a little survey before the employee comes on board, asking them some personal questions. What do you do on the weekend? Um, what sort of leagues are you in? W you know, what are your hobbies? And then that way, I can introduce you, Jesse, as someone, you know, he, he likes, he's in a softball league, he plays guitar. Um, I don't know any of this. It's true. <laughs> you can you can correct me. <laughs> Maybe he likes to bake cupcakes. I don't know. But then what what that does is that creates an opportunity for me or you know someone else on the team to say, oh, you like cupcakes. I like cupcakes. What what do you do? You know. So now we have a way to bond over matters that are not just work related about some similarities that are really key to building that relationship. And immediately, I mean, it starts. It just gets there start at the organization off on the right foot. And as you mentioned in the book, um, how they feel when they first arrive shapes every impression that 
develops afterwards. So on their first day, if it's not all just awkward, small talk and introductions, but they've got someone coming up and saying, hey, I'm into cupcakes too, there's just a, a much more likelihood of an immediate sense of relatedness. Absolutely. And, you know, I could talk for hours about the onboarding process. The way it works now at a lot of organizations is you have this corporate equivalent of speed dating where meetings are lined up one after the other. And by the end of the day, all the faces blend. You know, you don't really remember anybody. There's not really that opportunity for building deeper relationships. So what I argue in the book is stretch out that onboarding process where mm. if you know someone's coming on in two weeks, have someone on your team reach out to them, take them out to coffee um, so that they can build those relationships and then that person can look forward to joining the company and feel like they, they're coming to join a friend and have some information so that they're not just entering, like I give that metaphor of entering a party that's been going on with for years without you. And you really need to think carefully about how you're introducing people and um, positioning them to build those relationships rather than just pitting people in your office and hoping, you know, kind of closing your eyes and hoping these these relationships develop. There are some key things you can do, whether you're a manager or an employee, to ensure that people have better relationships at their companies. Hmm. One thing that I found kind of uh, interesting about the book, fascinating, is is uh, you seem to draw on the four components of self-determination theory, which it would be similar to what Daniel Pink's famous book, Drive, did. Um, both your book and Drive focus on autonomy and competence, but then you focused on relatedness and Drive focused on purpose. What's up with that difference there? Yeah, so this is a little bit inside baseball. So if you're looking strictly <laughs> at self-determination theory. And this is a theory that has drawn thousands, uh, well, I don't know about thousands, but hundreds of academic articles, maybe even thousands, frankly. Um, and it's, it's this is the theory that was proposed by Ed Deasy, who was the subject of Daniel Pink's Drive, and who was actually my advisor in graduate school. Um, the three components that he identifies and, and he and Rich Ryan talk about in self-determination theory are the need for autonomy, competence, and relatedness. And, you know, that I, I think purpose is certainly motivating. So Dan Pink and I certainly agree there. Um, and, I, you know, this is why in the book I talk about some, some reasons for why managers should provide a rationale. That's something that can help contribute to people's feeling of purpose um, when providing assignments. I talk about ways that companies can create opportunities to feel meaning and purpose in their work. Like, for example, meeting the beneficiary of a product. So, for example, if you are someone who is building uh, building cars all day, bringing in someone who's purchased the car to talk about how it's affected their life and, and, and uh, improved their way of living can help you find more meaning in the work that you do. Um, so there are, there are plenty of reasons for why we should be working to help people find purpose in their work. Um, but, you know, st again, strictly from a self-determination theory perspective, relatedness is the basic psychological need. And I, I, for me, that was a little bit more interesting because I th felt like it really wasn't given its due, in large part, I think, frankly, because writers haven't found a way to make that information actionable. So if I tell you it's really important for your employees to get along with one another, you might say that's really great for me to know, but what am I supposed to do about that? How do I make that actionable? That's why I wrote the book, is to give people then a, a, some, some information on how they can actually apply that information. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, again, it, 
again, this is inside baseball, but um, and I've had conversations with Rich Ryan at DC about purpose as a psychological needs. And, and one of the things they've suggested to me is that purpose naturally arises when you have experiences of autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Mm. So um, if you think about the definition of autonomy, and that's the experience of choice, if you're choosing to do a behavior, it's because you find value in it. You find purpose in it. So if you have the experience of autonomy, to some extent, you're also going to have purpose naturally. So I think, you know, this is really a semantical issue. Um, <laughs> I think there's clearly value to purpose. Um, but I wanted to make sure that that uh, connections and um, relatedness got its due. And, and I wanted to give people um, some information that they can use about how they can foster better connections in the workplace. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, Ron, before we wrap up, let's talk a little bit more about you and your work and how people can find out about you. What's, what, what is your, your day-to-day job and how are you serving people? Well, the name uh, of a company that I founded is Ignite 80, Ignite and then the number 80. And the reason it's called Ignite 80 is because there's data from Gallup showing that over 80% of people worldwide don't feel fully engaged in work. And so the reason uh, I founded Ignite 80 is to give leaders an inside look at some of the science and how they can apply it to their organizations to get their employees performing at their best. So within Ignite 80, we provide consulting and speaking and training workshops to leaders about how they can apply some of the research that's discussed in the best place to work and give them some feedback uh, about you know how their company's performing and what they can be doing better. So you can find me on Ignite80.com and um, you can also follow me on Twitter at Ron Friedman. And if you go on Ignite 80, there's an opportunity to sign up to get the first chapter of The Best Place to Work for free and updates on when articles are posted on CNN, Fast Company, and Harvard Business Review um, on some of the latest research. And who's your typical client? What, what kind of organizations and, and uh, job, uh, their job positions are you working with? You know, it really varies broadly. I, I, uh, I live in Rochester, New York, so I work with a lot of local organizations. But then since the book has come out, I've been uh, asked to give a lot of talks at, at some very large companies around the globe. So, you know, I, I can't say that I have an ideal client in mind. My, my goal really at this point is just to help as many companies as I can create a better workplace experience. Very good. Well, Dr. Ron Friedman, award-winning psychologist and human motivation expert, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. My pleasure. All right, Engagers. Again, the book is The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace by Ron Friedman, PhD. And uh, we'll provide the information and links that Ron mentioned on our show notes for this episode. You can find the show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash 105 as an episode 105. I hope uh, you got a lot of ideas from this discussion that we had with Dr. Friedman. I know I did. There's many, many more in the book. I encourage you to pick up a copy yourself. So follow those links from our show notes. And while you're on the show notes page, you can engage with us by providing your thoughts or questions in the comments section or by clicking on the red send voicemail button. You can also engage with us at facebook.com forward slash engaging leader or on Twitter where I am at Jesse Leahy. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at aspendalecommunications.com. 
Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about. 